All right, tonight we are in the book of Acts yet again. Uh, we started this series of Acts uh, way back in August. Uh, we are well over the double-digit number of sermons uh, that we have uh, been a part of in Acts. And if you remember, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 lays out the structure for the whole rest of the book. In Acts 1, 8, uh, Jesus, before he's ascended, he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem which is like here, Judea, here, Samaria, here, and then to the ends of the earth. And so as you start to move through the book of Acts, what you find is that the disciples are indeed witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem. That's Acts 2, that's Pentecost. They get to Judea from between chapters 2 and chapters 8, and then it hits Samaria in chapter 8. And then after chapter 8, it begins to get to the ends of the earth. And Antioch is where this thing really, really hits home. There's a powder keg moment that happens in Antioch in chapter 11 where the gospel really explodes. And uh, that's what we looked at a few weeks ago. Uh, We're kind of back in Antioch at this moment. Uh, But what you see uh, today is a real transition. That the first 12 chapters are main, the main character really is Peter. And starting in chapter 13, we really look at Paul uh, or Saul. And uh, yeah, Saul slash Paul was kind of a part of chapter 7 through about 12. But now he's on the scene, chapter 13, uh, moving forward. Uh, So before we look at that, let's uh, pray together. Uh, Father, I need your help. Uh, Lord, I don't have what it takes to do this tonight. And uh, Lord, I pray uh, that you would help me. And Lord, many who are here, they know that that life's uh, gotten the best of them. And, Lord, they know they don't have what it takes. And so, Lord, uh, we stand here needy. We stand here hungry. And we need you, the great provider, uh, the great chef, to feed us uh, once again. And so, uh, here we are. We have opened our mouths wide asking you to fill us. We know we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. Uh, We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, I came across something uh, a couple years ago, uh, something that happened in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, now, it's my dream uh, one day to spend uh, several weeks and do the whole national park thing. I did some of it when I was a kid, but I was an adolescent who really didn't care uh, about any of that. I just wanted to see bears. Uh, as long as I saw bears, I was good. And um, what I learned about Yellowstone National Park is that in 1995, they introduced uh, a new animal into the park. A new animal, at least, hadn't been there for 70-something years. Back in the 1920s, uh, they had uh, poached all the gray wolves of Yellowstone National Park because they thought they, they were a danger, uh, both to humans and to livestock. And so, in 1995, they reintroduced 41 gray wolves into the park. And the biggest reason they did this is because they had all these elk. The elk population had uh, had grown to a, a place that they really were a detriment to what was happening in Yellowstone National Park. Uh, what they knew was is that stuff was getting eaten uh, terribly. They were browsing and grazing uh, the park uh, to its detriment. So they introduced these 41 gray wolves trying to take care of the elk problem, and take care of the elk problem it did. Because up to that point, the elk could run wherever they wanted. If they wanted to spend all day down by the river, they could. Well, the wolves come in, and the, wolves, or the, the elk still have to get down to the river, but they can't stay there all day, every day, like they were used to. And so some crazy things start happening that no one had anticipated. The the trees started uh, to grow much higher than they used to. In fact, uh, some trees uh, quintupled in size. I mean, they were five times taller than they were before in a mere six years, simply because the elk weren't down there all the time. 
The other thing that happened is that when the elk were down by the, when they were down along the riverbanks, they would kind of eat away the, 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 creek's, uh, the, the creek's bed with their hooves. Well, they weren't down there all the time anymore to grow. The rivers start running more straight. They were less meandering. There were more pools. The beavers started to come back, and the beavers built dams, which provided new habitat for amphibians and for reptiles. And when that happened, everything just really started to explode. And who would have known that wolves would change the behavior of rivers? Now, you knew that wolves would change the behavior of elk, but rivers? Really? It was this cascade of effects that happened because wolves are part of this ecosystem in a natural way. Now, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but you're part of an ecosystem too. You're part of the ecosystem of the gospel. And in the ecosystem of the gospel, here's what you find in there. You're going to find, uh, you're going to find theological tradition. You're going to find the Bible. You're going to find your own missional cultural context, where we find ourselves in 2019 in Lexington, Kentucky. That's part of the ecosystem. Well, also as part of the ecosystem is the church. And so here we find ourselves in this ecosystem with all these different factors rolling around. The thing that's really hard about being 2019 in America is that there's been a wolf that's been extracted a long time ago. In fact, in a lot of ways, the wolf's never even been a part of the ecosystem. And part of that is being a multicultural church. Now, the reason that it's not in there, it's, not, it's, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, think about our country's history. And our country's history uh, was founded really to, 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 to provide a monocultural setting, that we had this legacy of slavery that automatically puts walls up in our society between who's in and who's out. And the effects we still feel today, 2019. But for many Americans, increasingly so, the choice is, it, the, the choice to be monocultural is already impossible because they live in spaces where there are so many different races and so many ethnicities that are represented there. But for others Americans, the choice is very soon going to be impossible because whites by 2045 will no longer be the majority in the U.S. Now here's what I found out about Lexington. In Lexington, since 2000, our non-white population has almost doubled in 19 years. Therefore, we've got to do some gospel thinking about this. But the good news is, is that though multicultural ministry may be a new subject for you, it's a new subject for most American Christians because we, for the most part, have done church in monocultural ways, this is not a new issue for the Scriptures. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 1 to 4 today. And what we see is that when they start including non-Jews into a mostly Jewish church, it was like inserting a wolf into Yellowstone. It had an impact that no one thought possible in Antioch. And I think we need to see what this dynamic will do for us, for this is what God desires. So let's read our passage together. Now, there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set, Barnabas apart, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went out to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. The word of the Lord. All right, two points tonight. They're in my sermon title. Uh, An unlikely team and an impossible task. An unlikely team and an impossible task. So let's look at the unlikely team. We see it in verse 1. In verse 1, you see five different names. And those five different names, they comprise this team, this team of prophets and teachers there in the church in Antioch. The first person who's on the team, there's Barnabas. We've already heard about Barnabas in the book of Acts, but here's what we know about him. We know he's a Jew. We know he's from Cyprus. And if he's a Jew from Cyprus, that means he's a Hellenistic Jew. That means he, he's a Greek-speaking Jew. And he really is the first official leader in the Antiochian church. And he's described in Acts 11, where we hear a little bit about him, he's described as someone who is someone who's made glad by God's grace. And he was, uh, he was a good man, and he was full of faith. So it's Barnabas, first member of the team. Second member of the team, look, look there in verse 1. The second member is Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, Simeon, who's called Niger, this is the only place we have him in the New Testament, so we don't really know much about him. However, his other name, Niger, makes him a dead giveaway. Niger is Latin for black. And so most scholars think that Simeon was likely a dark-skinned man from Africa. All right, who's the third member? You see him? Lucius of Cyrene. Now, we've seen Cyrene a couple weeks ago. Cyrene's a, a, a town on the northern coast of Africa. So here we have another African brother who's a part of this team of teachers and prophets. Fourth one, Manaean. Manaean's a really interesting cat here. Uh, Manaean is uh, said to be a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Now, lifelong friend could also be, uh, could, could also be translated as foster brother, okay? So this was, Manaean was someone who grew up in the same household as Herod the Tetrarch. Now, Herod the Tetrarch was the most powerful political figure in the Middle East. Remember, he was the Roman, he was the person who was set by Caesar in the Roman Empire to rule over this section of the Middle East. Herod the Tetrarch, that was his adopted, more or less his adopted brother. So here you've got a a card-carrying Gentile. He's a Gentile of Gentiles. Whatever Jews have in their mind is, this is what a Gentile is like, that was Manan. All right, so that's the fourth member. The last one, Saul. Saul's the most familiar to us, right? Saul is, in chapter 9 of Acts, he's set aside as the apostle to the Gentiles. Now, if you know a lot about Saul, you know that Saul's got everything Jewish going for him. Uh, he's got all of their credentials. He's got way more Jewish credentials than Peter or the rest of the apostles even thought about having. So it's a little odd, isn't it? That he would be the one that set aside to be the leader of the non-Jewish church. It's almost like God is saying, all right, Saul, you're going to be the apostle of the Gentiles because you're the most unlike all the Gentiles to reach them. So, if the Gentiles are going to be reached, I'm for sure going to get the credit for it, because you've got nothing going for you. And that was their team. Do you see how unlikely of a team this is? You've got two African brothers. You've got a Hebraic Jew in Saul. You've got a white-collar Gentile in Menaean. And then you've got a Greek-speaking Jew in Barnabas. And they make up this team of leaders for the Antiochian church. 
There was in Antioch, there wasn't an African church where Simeon and Lucius could set up shop. And then there wasn't a Gentile church for Manaean to shut up, set up shop. And there wasn't a Jewish Greek speaking church for Barnabas to set up shop. And there wasn't a Hebraic Jew church for Saul to set up shop. What we see starting back two chapters ago in Acts 11 is that the church intentionally started to move towards Gentiles. It didn't create parallel Christian communities full of Gentiles alongside of Jewish Christian communities, which were there first. Nor did it take the Gentile Christian communities and replace the Jewish Christian communities. So what these five leaders represent is that the Christian community in Antioch was broader and more inclusive than we could even imagine. So do you see the 13-1 for today? Now, we usually think about diversity or being multicultural really in one of two ways, the way our culture does. You either view it progressively, and progressively to think about issues of being multicultural is essentially to say that it's diversity for diversity's sake. Or we think about it on the conservative end, which is not even taking notice of differences in race. But there's a third way to think about being multicultural. And the first thing we've got to do is we've got to lay aside our progressive or our conservative approaches in order to take up this third approach. And it's the approach of the gospel. And what the gospel says is that we should be diverse whenever it's possible. In some contexts, being multicultural is impossible because their context is totally monocultural. But any church with integrity should seek to reflect its community. But how did Antioch do this? How are we supposed to do this? Look at the beginning of verse 2. Beginning of verse 2, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And what that little note tells us is that their togetherness, their unity, their organizing principle was simply Jesus. And for us, one of the reasons that diversity is so hard to achieve is that we're unable to say what we have in common. What we're trying to unify around is just being a diverse group. But when you do this, diversity according to the gospel, it's really clear what your organizing principle is. Your organizing principle is the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what do we do as a church? We fall in one of those two pits, don't we? We either take the conservative approach by ignoring race and what this results in are monocultural churches. Or we take the progressive approach and we just try to achieve diversity for diversity's sake. And we fail to make Jesus the organizing principle, the unifying factor. So if we're going to reflect our neighborhood, it's going to take us being fiercely committed to keeping Jesus central. And it's going to mean that we're going to lay aside our cultural preferences to love our neighbors who are different than us. See, when we worship Jesus together as a diverse group, here's what happens. It has a way of freeing us to listen to others' experience without prejudice. 
Worshiping Jesus together has a way of freeing us from our own cultural preferences. Worshiping Jesus together has a way of freeing us to repent when we unintentionally make decisions about people based on just how they look. And I'm sure that's what this team of five teachers and prophets had to do over and over and over and over again. And what's interesting is they weren't just five people sitting around talking about their cultural differences. (laughs) They weren't just five people who were just going to sit there together and sing Kumbaya to Jesus all day, every day. They were a people who were about an impossible task. That's what we see the rest of these two and a half verses. Because they're in prayer, and while they're in prayer, uh, God, the Holy Spirit, calls them to do something really radical. The Holy Spirit calls them to break up this band. This multicultural band gets broken up because the Spirit says, all right, Saul, Barnabas, you're going to go. You're going to leave Antioch. You guys were the first two leaders in Antioch, and now you're going to be the ones to go to the church in Cyprus. Isn't this interesting? You don't see any, uh, any kickback uh, from those leaders or anybody else in the church saying, hey, hey don't you know that Barnabas is our guy? Like, Barnabas is the one who's been teaching us for months and months and months. So, I mean... Do you see how crazy his story was? I mean, he's so smart, he can knock down anybody's argument against the faith. We really need these two leaders to keep us afloat. No, no, no. They said, we're going to give them away. And this just adds to the Antiochian church resume. The Antiochian church, they've already been what you could call aggressive in seeking the expansion of the gospel. Here's what they've already done. You, you guys know this. We were here in chapter 11. Uh, they were the, the first church on any kind of scale to be Jew and Gentile. They've got that going for them. Uh, they were the first church uh, to give away a ton of their money to a church that they've never even been a part of, 500 miles south of them, because there was a famine in Jerusalem. They give a ton of money away down to the church in Jerusalem. And now here they are continuing to be aggressive by setting aside their two, most four, their two foremost leaders to give away as missionaries. They're the first ones to do it. I mean, just think about it. if I came up here and said, all right, people, uh, Hope Presbyterian Church, we're two months old, not even, and um, here's what we're going to do as a church. We're going to be multicultural, we're going to give away a ton of money, and we're going to start new gospel works by giving away some of our key leaders. What would you guys say to me? You'd say, Marsh, you have lost your mind. That's a little arrogant. Aren't you trying to play uh, the heroic card here? Don't we need to move a little slower, be a little more deliberate, put together a long-range strategic plan? Uh, Don't we need to take care of ourselves first? We don't have a building. We've got a million kids. Uh, What are we supposed to do? But here's what the church in Antioch understood. They understood that there was a huge gap between what was possible with man and what was possible with God. And the way we know they understand that is that they prayed. This whole passage, they're praying before solemn arms are set aside, and they're praying after when they commissioned them. They didn't know who was going to take solemn Barnabas' place on church staff. They didn't know how to account for all the cultural differences in their church. 
They didn't necessarily have money in the budget to give it away to Jerusalem. And that's why they prayed. See, as long as you and I think gospel ministry is possible, we will not pray. In fact, it's really been my experience that our lack of prayer is often tied to our lack of faith in God to accomplish his mission through us. There's this old book. I mean, it's got, it's got about the most ridiculous cover you have ever seen. And um, it's called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. It's written by a guy named uh, John Miller. He happens to be the dad of Paul Miller, if you've read Praying Life. If you've not read Praying Life, maybe if you've never read a Christian book, I would commend Praying Life to you by Paul Miller. Well, this is his dad. This is the OG here. And um, this, is a, this is one of my favorite books of all time. At the end, very end of his book, in the epilogue, he talks about uh, the need to accept that there are going to be mistakes made in our ministry whenever we take risks. And here's his quote. He says, if we make mistakes, so be it, but persevere. As we persevere, we'll find that we are being helped by the Spirit not to repeat the same old mistakes. We'll discover that God-sized successes are beginning to come. But it would have never happened if we were not willing at some point to learn the ropes by plunging in where we lacked ability and experience. End quote. Listen, I, I really, I have no idea how we're going to meet the needs of the poor in our community. The truth is, none of us, very few of us, grew up poor. We don't know the first thing about it. How are we going to be a multicultural church? Again, I don't really have any idea. And the truth is that there are very few churches in America in the 21st century who are doing this in any kind of meaningful way. How are we going to be a part of planning new churches when we just became one 50-something days ago? I have no idea. But here's what I do know. Jesus rose from the dead. As impossible as it seems for us to be a generous, multicultural, church-planning church, it's not nearly as impossible as the situation that Jesus found himself in. See, Jesus was dead. I mean, deader than dead. Deader than you'll ever be, in fact. I mean, put, put this metaphor together. I mean, you know, Jesus wasn't in a grave like uh, you and I are going to be in graves where we're underground. He was more in the side of a cave. I want you to imagine, and yes, there was a stone that was rolled over top of the hole of the cave. That's what we think archaeologically. But the truth is there were really metaphorically three stones rolled in front of Jesus' grave. The first one was just his death. I mean, he was really dead, not like 99.9% dead and he got sparked back to life. No, he was all the way down. And he had to roll that stone away. The second stone he had to roll away was the stone of God's wrath for our sin. Now, when you and I die, die, we're not absorbing the wrath of God for the sins of the world. Jesus did. And the third stone he had to roll away is that he had to overcome Satan and evil itself. You and I don't have to do that, but Jesus did. 
And so here Jesus is coming out of the grave, rolling one stone away at a time. How was that possible? It was the power of God. It was impossible outside of God's power. And so if Jesus is risen, and he has, and if the Holy Spirit dwells in you, and he does, then God can make us a people who plant churches. He can make us a multicultural church. And he can make us a people who are radically generous to the poor. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, song I heard today on the radio, Lord, I thank you that you rose again from the grave. <laughs> Lord, without that, we, uh, we wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. Without you raising from the grave, we wouldn't have uh, hope that these kinds of things are possible. Lord, without you raising from the grave, we'd have no hope of eternal life. Lord, without you raising from the grave, we'd have no hope of getting a new body. Lord, but because all these things are true, uh, Lord, it's only appropriate that we would sing. So Lord, you empower us to do so. In Christ's name, amen.